This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Thanks for downloading a repeated episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. That's right. If you listened in to last week's very short message, you found out that we had some technical difficulties. So this Technical is a difficulties re- is a very nice euphemism for I was too stupid not to delete the file. Well, you know. <laughs> it sounds like um, a user error more than technical difficulties to me. <laughs> okay. Due to some user error, we are now re-recording the episode. Uh, unfortunately, I have largely forgotten, guys, what what feedback we had gotten last time we recorded so none because we recorded it like two days after we did the one before oh that's right that's right so in the meantime uh we have had some more on the blog michael do you want to talk about your book review yeah i reviewed nathaniel philbrick's new book why read moby dick Mm Hmm. and if you want to go uh if you want to find out what i said you'll have to go to the blog and read it there you go i like the book okay and it looked like there was already some chatter going on. I've been busy the last couple of days, so I haven't really looked at it. But Right, right. Carter S., I think his name is, is uh, reading Moby Dick for the first time. And so we talked a little bit about Moby Dick. Very good, very good. Brave man. <laughs> uh, now, that other voice that you're hearing, the one who didn't erase last week's episode, is a professor at Central Christian College of Kansas. Uh, he is David Grubbs. How are you doing this morning, David? Oh, a little bit groggy. I mean, I, I just actually started using my voice today uh, um, about 15 seconds ago, uh, at which point uh, Michael informed me that I sound like Eeyore on Downers. So, so yeah. But other than that, I'm doing pretty grand. David, did you just wake up? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm imagining you still sitting in bed. No, I'm not sitting in bed because otherwise my wife would be throwing things at me. Yeah. But um but I am pretty much like wearing a bathrobe. Nice. So, you know. There you go. And yeah. the one who thinks it nice of course is assistant professor of English at Crown College, Mr. Michael Farmer. How are you this morning, Michael? Oh, I'm okay. All right. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the time of the semester where okay is about the best you're going to be able to hope for. I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> Well, folks, as you know, uh, this week's episode is on environmentalism. This is a request episode. It was requested by Doug in Maine. Oh, before, and before we go before we go on, Nathan, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We did have some new feedback this week, which is we had quite a number of women email us and say, hey, you're, it's not just men who listen to the show. That is right. That is right. I'd forgotten about that. So, yes. So and thank I, you to all our female listeners. Yeah, it was we, very gratifying. We love you in a completely non-harassment way. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> and so now into the subject matter. Uh, like I said, environmentalism, it's a request episode. Michael, because I'm interested in getting to Christian responses to and participation in the modern movement of environmentalism, uh, I want to lay down our biblical and historical groundwork fairly quickly here and then maybe come back later and comment on it. Uh, so give us your best brief version of creation in the Bible, humanity's relationships with the same, uh, a mention at least of Genesis and the Gospel of John, whatever you feel like talking about biblically in a brief manner. Well, um, the foundational fact in Genesis seems to me to be stewardship. So in the order of creation, man comes last. I guess woman technically comes last, but humanity comes last. And God says, you know... Uh, the, the earth is yours. And while some people, most notably Ann Coulter, uh, <laughs> have taken this to mean, that, and these are her exact words, that the earth is yours, take it, rape it. Uh, I, I don't think that is what <laughs> mainstream biblical scholarship thinks. It, it seems more like we're house-sitting for God, that he has given us this world and, and kind of instructed us to take care of it and not burn it down. 
Right. Um, once you get to the New Testament, once you look at the Gospel of John, um, it posits Christ, of course, as the agent of creation. He is somehow intimately involved in the creation of the universe. And thus, again, um, something about environmentalism becomes a sacrament because, because it, it necessarily involves Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and then the only other thing I really wanted to talk about was Romans chapter 8, which features this, uh, you know, typically long and convoluted statement from St. Paul. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And it, it, it seems like he's saying that when humanity fell, the entire creation also fell, which means it it it, it somehow participates not only in our sin, but in our redemption. Although right. he doesn't go into the specifics of what that looks like, and I assume theologians over the years have proffered eight hundred different viewpoints about it. I imagine they have. But but certain certainly the creation seems to be involved in both our sin and our redemption through no fault of its own. Mm hmm. Right. Right. Well, David, uh, since Michael mentioned theologians, you know that I like to call wrong-headed assumptions into question. And one of the grand misconceptions floating about is that Augustine, who is one of our common favorites here on this podcast, is univocally anti-matter and therefore anti-creation. Uh, I'm going to use my Swami powers here and predict a visit to City of God, books 11 and 22. Uh, but go where you will. Talk a little bit about Augustine in particular and his complex relationship with material creation. Sure, and that, and that was admirably prescient of you, by the way. That, that was <laughs> phen phenomenal, because, well, that's, that's where I went with it uh, last week. But, well, there you go. Um, well, first, why do people get the notion that, uh, that Augustine is, is anti-material? Probably stems from a couple different things. Uh, the first is his background uh, as a Manichaean before he was uh, uh, converted to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Manichaeanism was a, uh, uh, well, it, um, I, it's hard to say whether it was an aberrant Christian-esque religion or whether it was uh, some completely different um, world religion that had cottoned on to some Christian language and uh, in order to... Uh, enhance its public relations. Uh, either way, uh, one of the main notions in the Manichaean uh, scheme of things is that spirit is good and matter is bad, and part of ultimate salvation is getting beyond uh, the prison of matter and into the liberation and goodness of spirit. Um, and so the fact that Augustine comes from this standpoint, I think sometimes has led people to uh, to look at him askance because this this was uh, well at least one of his religious backgrounds before uh, before converting to Christian orthodoxy under the ministry of St. Ambrose. Um, the other the other place where this misconception can come from is his uh, confessions where he talks an awful lot about his his flesh and the sin the sin of his flesh um but i think this this is more readily explained in reference to uh well uh, pauline language he loves he loves paul he gets a lot of his language a lot of his concepts uh from paul and in this case notably the 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 uh, the tendency to talk about flesh, to talk about body when talking about sin. Now, we, we, we know from the confessions that Augustine's uh, background, his religious background was Manichaeanism, but his, his uh, sort of biographical background was one of uh, somewhat, somewhat dissolute living. Um, he, had, he had a mistress. He was a uh, so far as we can tell, one who had an eye for the ladies, and 
after his conversion to Christianity, these were things that he regretted. And so I think because his sin uh, in his past, because his repentance was aimed at uh, those kinds of sins in which um, the body is most obviously uh, complicit, um, that shows up a lot in, his, in the confessions. Which is why it's good to read something other than the confessions. Um, right. uh, dealing with the Manichaean thing, you can read any of uh, half a dozen works of his that either overtly or either o- overtly is against Manichaeanism, or eventually turns that way. It was one of his favorite soapboxes, and sometimes he would even chase rabbits in sermons. Um, he would chase Manichaean rabbits and end up finishing the sermon in the way he did not intend because, well, Manichaeanism came up. Um, but City of God is the place you ultimately want to go, and those books that you referred to, Nathan, uh, chapter 11, or sorry, bu- uh, book book 11 and then book 22. Uh, book 11 is where he describes creation and particularly the, the, the origin of, of evil and distinctions between good and evil. Uh, short version, creation is good by nature, all all things material and immaterial, which God made, seen and unseen, as the creeds have it, uh, were created good by nature. Evil mm. isn't a natural thing. It, it, it isn't a thing. It's a, um, it's it's a it's a character. It's a characteristic of a re- of relationship between things, and therefore uh, matter can't be evil. <laughs> um, but what happens with uh, with sin and the fall of man is that human uh, humans in their relationship to the natural world, particularly that part of the natural world they're most intimately connected with, their bodies, uh, that that relationship is, is is skewed, so that the so that the bodily uh, desires, the bodily um, will, so to speak is no longer in accord with uh, with reason uh, and with the the higher will of uh, you know of conscience so so that um, part of part of our experience as, as fallen beings and fallen world is this kind of war in our flesh uh, our body seems to want the want one thing and our and our rationality wants something else book 22 presents a resolution to this in the bodily resurrection. Um, and so unlike unlike the Platonists, unlike the Manichaeans, the ultimate resolution of the problem of, uh, of, of evil, um, both morally and physically in terms of entropy and suffering and things like that, uh, the ultimate solution to that is the bodily resurrection um, in which the human body, the restoration of the human body is kind of the microcosm of the restoration of the whole physical universe. Um, so again, we're going to focus on human bodies, but human bodies as kind of the most, uh, the, the aspect of the natural world we, we know best and have closest contact with. Um, unlike Plato, um, bodies are things, Augustine says, that, that can be in heaven. Bodies are things that can... Uh, participate in this kind of in in the in the ultimate reality um that we seek uh of 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 god and the things of god um even and and you know as much as augustine is said to be anti-sex while he is anti-body um uh and i I say that this this will sound funny but even women will be restored um the 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 sex of woman the biological distinct distinctiveness of of woman and man will be preserved, he says, in the resurrected body, um, because he says the sex of woman is not a vice but nature, which, um, which I think more medieval theologians later um, probably could have looked at a little bit more, particularly some of the monastic writers. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the um, people, the people who are who tend to be anti-body are often anti-woman. So you think of the the Gnostic Gospel of. Is it, is it Thomas where where they ask Jesus how uh, how Mary's going to be allowed into heaven since she's a woman and he says oh no problem I'll turn her into a man right yes right. exactly that sort of thing but that's that's completely antithetical to Augustine and you can kind of see, you you can kind of see how he's 
uh, you know, City of God is a later work, Confessions is an earlier work. You can kind of see how he's mulled over um, his own desires, his own experiences, and he and he talks for for some while about the beauty of the body of woman and how in the resurrection. Um, humanity, you know, all humanity, including men like himself, will be be able to appreciate um, the beauty of the woman's physicality, but in a way that is in accord with rationality, in a way that is in accord with with conscience and goodness, and so they can see see the good beauty. Um, of gender distinction, of, bio, of the biological distinctions between man and woman, and so um, rejoice in God, the great artist, but in in seeing those differences, um, and we can and we can make that move, I think, uh, in, in into into other ways. You know, Augustine is a man writing for men in a in a time that's dominated by men, but he doesn't imagine the material perfection at the end of the world when all things are restored as a total man, you know, man world. Mm. Um, it's, you know, woman, woman is also there. And I think we can also, you know, kind of extrapolate from there that, that all the, all the difference of the natural world, which is reflective of, uh, the beauty of God and the wisdom of God and all of its, and all of its diversity. Um, that that will be restored. And, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I think Augustine is a great place to go, um, for a Christian environmental vision simply because he sees all of the, all of the diversity as something that also reflects that ultimate goodness. You know, all things being brought together and made one in Christ don't mean that in the, in, that at the end of the day, Christ is the only one left standing. Right, right. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. Thank you, David. Well, Michael, we really can't talk about modern environmentalism without talking about modern science, uh, but we really can't do justice to that grand topic, although we did do an episode specifically on science, science a while ago. Uh, I do want to go around the horn here at this point and ask each of you to talk about one figure in the history of science who's especially important to how Christians think about the environment. Uh, you can pick a Christian or someone else, but be sure to say a bit about how their most important contributions change the character of our relationships with the created world. So, Michael, won't you start off and then send it around the horn to David, and I'll wrap it up. Well, I'll confess this is not something I know a huge amount about, so I did a little research and picked a guy I thought looked interesting. Um, I'd never heard of him before. His name is John Ray. He was a 17th century British man. He uh, He's sometimes called the father of British naturalism. Naturalism in the, uh, the sense of interest in nature, none of the sense of materialism or Stephen Crane's naturalism. Um, he is one of the great polymaths of the 17th century, and, and sometimes it seems like everybody in the 17th century was an expert in seven or eight different fields, but Ray certainly fits in with that. He, uh, he taught biology, he taught zoology, mathematics, philosophy, Greek. He was also a Calvinist clergyman, as so many of those guys were, not Calvinist necessarily, but so many of the great scientists of the 17th century were also clergymen, because clergymen had time to do scientific experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, he had two major contributions to science. Number one, he cataloged thousands upon thousands of plants and animals. And number two, he, um, he, he gave the first definition, biological definition, of the word species. So he, he, really, um, he really changed the way we think about science. He narrowed things down. He was an empiricist who defended empiricism against the kind of uh, deductive method favored by, favored by the scholastics of the Middle Ages. Um, he formulated, as it turns out, an early version of Paley's teleological argument. Uh, the, the, the famed watchmaker argument. I don't think he used the watchmaker analogy, but he did he did formulate an early version of the argument from design. Um, so if he's not a role model for the intelligent design movement, he probably should be. And he's still, you know, he's, he's had just an enormous impact on science and by all accounts was a very uh, devout and orthodox believer. All right. David? Mm. 
Um, I'm going to also fudge being a humanities guy, not a science guy. Um, so I'm, I'm going to latch on to uh, a gentleman who kind of uh, bestrides both as a titan, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, he was, uh, well, we know, we know him best, I think, as an artist, but also he was, uh, he was a scientist uh, by, the, by the standards of his own day. Um, and I, th I think even, even, even more than, you know, the standards of his own day, uh, because what we see, uh, particularly in his, his, uh, his anatomical sketches, um, his, his zoological sketches, ge geological sketches, um, we see him paying very close attention to the structure of the material world. Um, he's... Uh, he's actually, you know, I, I, I like that you brought up the inductive versus deductive, uh, Michael, because um, one of the things that you see in, in the Italian Renaissance is a shift in art from more kind of symbolic representations of, of, of the world in art, um, you know, drawing men, drawing, you know, humans, men and women who look like... Uh, who don't look like men and women, except in the sense that they look like men and women look in pictures, you know? Well, like Byzantine, um, Byzantine iconography, right? Right, right. Uh, you, but you, you, you begin seeing with people like Leonardo um, an artistic eye that actually has a close regard for what's there, um, including not only beauty but also ugliness. Um, he has some, some remarkably good sketches of not attractive people. That are really interesting to look at, um, but science, um, and so and so that's 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 part of you know that's that's part of modern science is is paying attention to what's there, not just um, you know sort of taking taking the theories that you've inherited and extrapolating from them and ignoring uh, the phenomena as it is. Um, you know he he. Even went so far, and this was, you know, kind of risky in his in his own day. He even went so far as to engage in gross anatomy, um, dissecting human beings and sketching what he found there. Well, that is um, gross. Well, it is gross, but um, it, it was also um, very more uh, a morally touchy subject. Mm. But but he went there, so he had this this kind of. You can see how he has this scientist's, uh, I don't know, distance. From, uh, from from his subject, so that so that he'll engage in things that would be distasteful to others in order to seek this knowledge. However, it all comes out in beauty. It all comes out beautiful. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in talking to you know different science uh, you know professors of sciences and students of the sciences is if you get talk to a scientist long enough. Eventually, they'll start talking about how beautiful the thing they study is, how amazing it is. Um, but I think uh, Christians coming at science and coming at the at, at the the uh, the material world can also talk about artistry, and I think Leonardo da Vinci is one of the uh, one of the figures who who equips us to talk about science and artistry. Um, at once, and so you know, if you want to talk about you know watchmakers, Michael, um, you know this this is this is another kind of argument for God, an argument you know not just from design, but an argument from beautiful design, and um, which in turn uh, I th I think is something that shapes a lot of Christian views today on the environment is that idea of. God just not making not just making a a mechanism that works remarkably well, but God making something beautiful that should be appreciated on its own terms. So, yeah, enough about me. <laughs> All right, and for my scientist, I'm going to take Gregor Mendel. Uh, he is an Austrian, 19th century. Uh, he is most famous not for being a Christian, even though he was an Augustinian friar, uh, but for his contributions to genetics. And in fact, he largely invented the modern science of genetics. He worked roughly contemporary with Charles Darwin. It's not clear whether Darwin was aware of Mendel's work, 
But within 50 years of Darwin's death, Gregor Mendel's theory of genetics largely saved Darwinism from the dust heap of history, uh, which is a fascinating little historical paradox given the, the status of Charles Darwin in modern evangelical circles, which is to say not much of one. Um, what Mendel taught us to see differently, and that's what I think of as sci- that's how I think of scientists as serving humanity. They teach us to see the world in a way that we didn't see. Uh, is that he made us see that there are certain traits genetically that do indeed blend. So, for instance, uh, there are certain traits uh, such as skin pigmentation and, st- and such to where a dark-skinned parent and a light-skinned parent are fairly likely, statistically speaking, uh, to have offspring whose skin color is somewhere in between. However, what Mendel discovered is that for a far, far greater span of traits than was previously realized, those traits actually happen on quantum levels. In other words, there are definite dominant traits and definite recessive traits and the two do not blend into a semi-dominant or a semi-recessive trait uh, very often at all, except in the case of mutations, which is a later theory. Uh, but, you know, what's fascinating about him, of course, is that I got taught Gregor Mendel, uh, not in Sunday school and not even in uh, church history, when I took church history in seminary, but in high school biology class, because he was important enough uh, to the science of genetics that Again, he teaches us to think of the natural world and its differentiation between species and within species as something that is inherent within that natural order. So, another Christian who is also a scientist, it looks like we all three picked scientists of that sort. Uh, I I usually don't like to do mini-lectures when I'm moderating, but... Uh, since environmentalism, as we know it, is an inherently modern phenomenon, I am going to talk a few minutes, guys, about the move in continental philosophy uh, from atomism to systematic thinking. Uh, and I'm going to start with Baruch Spinoza. He was a 17th century thinker. Uh, he was largely reacting to the early Enlightenment thinkers, especially Rene Descartes. And for Descartes, of course, the world as we experience it, is inherently untrustworthy. Uh, In his famous illustration, he says that, you know, anything that we see could be some sort of deception or delusion. Uh, And moreover, if we think that God is somehow feeding sensory impressions into us directly, we could just as easily posit that because of circumstances that are unknown in heaven, we're actually being fed our sensory impressions by some sort of deceptive spirit in heaven. Uh, And therefore, nothing that we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell is inherently trustworthy. Moreover, the matter that we actually do see, hear, taste, touch, smell seems to have unreliability built into it. And his example, of course, is the candle. Uh, When you apprehend a candle, it has a certain hardness, it has a certain color, it has a certain temperature, It has a certain shape. If you heat that candle up, it becomes wax, which is much hotter. It's a different color. It smells different. It reacts differently to touch. Uh, And in many other ways, it's an unreliable thing. So Descartes said, therefore, only the realm of the intellectual is trustworthy at all. Mm. Now, Baruch Spinoza comes along and says, you know, that split between the intellectual and the physical Uh, is something that ultimately is untenable uh, because we are embodied creatures. You know, our mind is itself part of creation. And in fact, his philosophy eventually approaches, and I would say dwells on, a pantheism in which humanity, as well as the material world that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, as well as the functions of mind, as well as human communities, all of these things are part of an ultimate principle, which he calls God. Uh, now, that pantheism uh, has certain, certain implications uh, that persist even for those people like myself who are not pantheists, namely that anything that you find within a system, and this is why I call it systemic or systematic thinking, uh, for instance, the skull of a wolf, uh, you can do certain things by studying it in isolation, but you don't get the whole picture because the skull of the wolf is part of a skeletal system, 
which is in turn part of a wolf's body, which is in turn part of a wolf pack, which is in turn part of an ecosystem, which is in turn part of the biosphere. And unless all of those levels are operating together in fairly substantial ways, uh, you're not understanding the full truth of the wolf skull. All right. So that's Baruch Spinoza. The other person I want to talk about just briefly is Friedrich Hegel. And of course, you could spend three years talking about Friedrich Hegel or Spinoza for that matter. And by the way, listeners, uh, if you've got a more robust knowledge of Spinoza and Hegel, feel free to comment on the blog. And yes, I'm looking at you, Trip Fuller. Uh, but <laughs> Hegel, what he contributes is, you know, he is coming off of Immanuel Kant, who makes, again, a strong distinction between things as they are or the noumenal realm and things as we experience them or the phenomenal realm. And the way that Hegel departs from that is he says, again, that because we are part of this system, because we are the part of reality that thinks about reality, and therefore we are basically the mind of God in the world, uh, because of all that, the ways that we apprehend things have to be considered historically first and foremost, but also as part of that overarching, systematic, natural world. Now, again, the criticisms of Hegel are very valid. He seems to uh, spiritualize the world, certainly, but he also tends to mater materialize the spirit. Uh, he also tends to view history and providence as basically identical when, you know, those of us who confess a biblical tradition have that strong strain of apocalyptic telling us that we can't so easily do that. Um, but, you know, again, the, the contributions that these two make to the conversation we're having here is that they move continental philosophy especially, and then by extension, the intellectual life of Europe, and then by extension, the intellectual life of those in contact with continental Europe, uh, towards a way of thinking that considers everything to be in relationship with each other, including human beings who are apprehending the natural world at the same time as we are part of the natural world. Uh, that is the very, very brief version of Spinoza and Hegel. I mean, do either of you two want to add any tidbits to that? Gracious <laughs> All right, all right. I, I don't have any tidbits of either Hegel or Spinoza, sorry. Fair enough. I, I, I didn't figure you'd have a whole lot, and it turns out I was right. So uh, <laughs> let's move away from continental philosophy now. Uh, now that we've got a general historical sketch in place, David, I want to turn the question that's really at the forefront of most people's minds when we say environmentalism, namely politics. Uh, and to start, I mean, if you could, try to articulate what chafes people on both sides, since in American politics there are only two sides and everyone else is crazy like Gilmore. Uh, talk about what chafes both sides of this question and then feel free to wade in and make sense of environmentalism as a broadly political phenomenon. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think I think it is good that you uh, enlarged somewhat on uh, Spinoza and Hegel, um, because li hearing hearing their particular contribution to you know thinking about uh, humans in the world, um, I I, th I, th I think can can make um, can make more sense of uh, particularly the the the. Th some of the philosophical underpinnings of environmentalism, um, the, the 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 notion of interconnectedness. Um, now, politically, I mean, that, that is such a messy topic, and <laughs> I don't want to. I don't like to poke it too much because it because that dog bites you. Um, still, if I'm I'm going to come first, you know, from the from the perspective of you know those who we who who will put ist environmentalists um yeah the talk about the interconnectedness of, of of living things um human beings as part of this uh this web of of natural interactions um so that uh so that all all you know all all sorts of human actions have have this impact on uh, the the natural world around us of things that 
uh, well, we're reared in our culture to think of as as beautiful and friendly things. You know, we we grow up watching cartoon movies with you know sympathetic talking animals, and so I think uh, have a difficulty shaking that. So that later on, when we find out that uh, you know some some particular kind of uh, industry or particular approaches to agriculture or whatever. Um, result in the displacement or the, the, the suffering and death of particular animals. Um, the, the reaction that rises up in, in the heart of, uh, of many people, and especially those we call environmentalists, is save those beautiful things from the destruction of man. Um, and so that, that's, you know, that's the, the, the motivation, you know, save, save all of the beautiful things. Um, and that, yeah, okay, yeah, let's 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 do that. Um, the problem, uh, and then you know, I'm I'm stepping out of that, uh, stepping out of that point of view, and now looking at it from from outside, is that sometimes this uh, this environmentalist vision of how things ought to be seems to not have a whole lot of room for human beings. Um, at least not a whole lot of human beings. Uh, very often environmentalism ends up running alongside of uh, uh, the notion of population caps and uh, there are just too many human beings and we've got to uh, we've got to rein that in in, in in some way which which always seems to end up reflecting on birth rates in the third world which I think ends up being kind of racist. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Anyway, the, the the you know the the critique I think um, of, of a lot of non-environmentalists is is you know where do humans fit? Um, you know you ha- I mean you have people like the voluntary human extinction movement, uh, vehement is the way they say it, who uh, who think that human beings are a virus on the earth and you know our effect on the system is such that it's going to destroy the system utterly and therefore we must voluntarily uh, vow to to neuter ourselves um, and you know and so you know lead about to a gradual dwindling and then disappearance of humanity um, for the good of the planet uh, and I, I think this uh, what you said Nathan about uh, Hegel kind of spiritualizing matter um, uh, there, there seems to be some of that. This, this idea that a, a natural world, a natural biosphere, left to itself to just pursue its own, you know, unguided ends without any human in- interference whatsoever, that that would be the perfect good, mm-hmm. and that somehow, you know, at least for 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 some of these uh, some of these people, that ultimate good is something that doesn't have humans in it. Um. Doesn't doesn't their ability to sacrifice themselves for a higher good suggest that humanity is better than a virus? <sighs> you, you're 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 suggesting that. Um, well, I, I I don't know. My 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 impression in reading a lot of the rhetoric is that they're 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 coming at this with a physical with with a, a sort of a, a philosophical. Um, box of crayons that's only got like four or five colors in it um you know the the kind of subtlety that can you know nuance uh human relationships to the world is is often left out of the rhetoric i don't know maybe if you if you pressed uh some if you press some of these people and got them you know talking in things that that aren't readily sketched as all capital slogans to be held up on signs while protesting this, that, or the other. Um, you know, they could get into, they could get into that, but mm, uh, just a lot of, a lot of the rhetoric, which is what you see on both sides, to be fair, a lot of the rhetoric ends up boiling it all down into completely unsubtle points, um, which, you know, I, I can, I can readily see why both sides rub each other wrong. Um, just because because of the nature of political rhetoric to do that. Anyhow, um, I, personally, I would like a world in which I can exist, but I would also like a world in which, I don't know, elephants and raccoons and 
uh, bits of the Kansas prairie that don't have asphalt on them and things like that also exist. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I'm, maybe I'm trying to be crazy like you, Gilmore. <laughs> I'm just Michael glad to hear that Kansas has finally paved their roads. Hey, we have paved roads here. Not all of them are gravel. A substantial number of them are still gravel, but a lot of them are paved. They all run in straight lines. All of them. <laughs> I just I just wanted to take a pot shot at another sort of environmentalist I can't get on with, which is the uh, romanticizing city dweller. So ah. I remember when we recorded this episode before I told this story, and I like it, so I'm going to tell it again, since our audience hasn't heard it. Uh, I, I was listening to This American Life back when I actually used to listen to it, before I decided I wanted to kill Ira Glass. Um, and, and he had this woman on, who was from New York City, of course, and she um, she had gone for a walk in the woods because, you know, she loved nature. And she wanted to commune with nature. And she got attacked by a rabid raccoon. And she said that she felt like nature had betrayed her. And, and to me, this is kind of an ugly legacy of environmentalism that, that we, we somehow feel that we have some sort of contract with nature whereby we won't hurt it and it won't hurt us. But of course it doesn't work that way because nature doesn't give a flying flip about you or me or that woman who got attacked by the raccoon and it certainly owes us nothing and you can devote your whole life to saving it but a bear could still eat you. You know what I mean? It doesn't owe you anything. Mm-hmm. Like and, that guy that got eaten by a bear. Like uh, like Grizzly, Grizzly Man. I forget his real name. Yeah. So I, I mean... They're not as aggravating as the zero population growth people, but they, they are. It's it's a certain sort of smug urban liberalism that I can't get along with because mm. it's people who assume they understand nature when, in fact, they understand nothing about nature. And, in fact, mm-hmm. hunters, I think, understand nature far better than uh, than the kind of weekend getaway urbanites. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally agree with that. And I said this to uh, someone who has never held a gun. And has no interest in hunting, but the hunters I know understand nature. Oh, and see, I used to hunt squirrel and rabbit, but I can't shoot straight, so I never got many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if if I could just add one counterbalance to those two, uh, please do. You know, if I can talk about one species of wrong-minded. Uh, environmental talk from the anti-environmentalist side, I would say that, and it's not even really anti-environmentalist, it is either in bad faith pretending to be environmentalist or very cynically deceiving people into thinking that it might be environmentalist, if that makes any sense at all. But it is the approach that says, uh, let's take on problems of the environment with free market solutions. (laughs) And, you know... In my mind, I mean, and again, you know, this might just be my ignorance of free market principles, so our our conservative listeners out there, by all means, correct me on this, but I was under the impression that free market meant that you don't try to put solutions on it. Uh, you know, I that's kind of, you know, what I think of when I think of free market is, you know, get your solutions off of my business. What, what uh, would a free market solution to environmental problems look like? What, I mean, what what sort of thing do they recommend? You know, honestly, I've I've never gotten any of them to expand beyond the slogan. So I, you know, I, I've never really heard what that might look like. I, I mean, are we supposed to j- just assume that businesses will do the right thing? That they won't they won't pollute? I mean, because I think a hundred years of American life has show, shown us that the large corporations don't mind polluting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the places where I've heard the, those kinds of uh, that kind of language used is in uh, the development of alternative energy sources. Oh, okay, okay. Well, and it's um, less ridiculous there, right? But but where it's you Still know, ridiculous, if, if we're going to you know, if we're going to find some kind of sustainable alternative to fossil fuels, it's going to need to be something that the economy can switch to, and it actually be a viable economical alternative to fossil fuels. As long as fossil fuels remain cheaper than every other alternative, um, switching to the alternatives is going to be, you know, an, an additional burden, which, right, right. you know, which, which right now, uh, additional burdens on the economy don't seem like a great plan. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and but, if I can go Adam Smith just for a second, I mean, David, I, I recognize that, I mean, there are theory of moral sentiments, reasons for companies not to pollute, uh, but it seems like the wealth of nation solutions is precisely to let the companies do what they will. Right. Well, and, and a, lo- a lot of the cases, though, I, I think a lot every 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 but all sides mm-hmm. as in and I think all people would would benefit from having a robust notion of one human fallenness mm-hmm. and then on the other side of that uh the the notion of the eschaton at the end um in which Free market solutions are going to be tainted with human evil because free market solutions are invented by and executed by human beings. Mm-hmm. Regulatory solutions are going to be, you know, are going to be flawed. Are going to there will be ways to subvert them. They will end up having effects that we never anticipated because, again, they are created by sinful human beings, and that sinfulness. Interpenetrates all of the, all of its efforts, right. and so I, I think on 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 both sides, nobody's going to be able to make heaven on earth. Oh, not by any means, not by you any know? means. But, <laughs> and, but if I can entirely anyway. misappropriate Luther for a moment, you sure. know, I, I've always got to remember that you know there are two uses for the law: one to convict of sin, but the other to restrain evil. Yeah. So I I tend to think of regulation governed by the reasoning faculties of elected public officials as having a as being a check upon the corporations now of course i mean you got to reckon with the fact that most of the politicians get reelected because the big corporations give them lots and lots of money but uh you know even so in principle anyway uh that's supposed to be you know at least in my misappropriation of luther sense how these things are supposed to work. So, I mean, I'll agree with you, David, that heaven on earth is always going to be uh, something that happens in Revelation chapter 21 and not before. Uh, (laughs) But I would say that the restraining of evil, to use, you know, Romans 13 language, uh, still ought to be something that we consider a valid function of government. And that sounded very Christ the center, didn't it? Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, Nathan sounded like Christ the center. Oh my gosh, where did Nathan go? I don't know. Maybe he got raptured. I sense an absence. Oh, uh, well, okay. Listeners, uh, Nathan had to go. He had meetings. Uh, He is a man in another time zone, and therefore his day happens to him earlier than it does to Michael and I, uh, being in the central time zone. So um, we're going to continue the conversation. Um, Since... uh, the the gentleman with all of these scientific and philosophical and uh, well polished political acumen has just left the building. We're going to turn to literature. So um, people tend to like it when we get literary. They say we do that well. So before we finish up, um, it is technically the only thing we're qualified to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so before we uh yeah, before we finish Michael, let's um you know, let's talk about some literary texts that uh that bring some uh raise some good questions, make some good points about the environment, about ecology, about creation, things of that nature. And uh yeah, what 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 who do, who do you want to bring up to the plate in terms of literature? Well, as the Americanist, I have to talk about the foundational environmental text in American literature, which is Thoreau's Walden. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to what you probably, not you necessarily, David, or you necessarily, Lister, but contrary to what one often hears, Thoreau does not really go out into the woods in order to convene with nature. He goes out in the woods to live self-reliantly. However, it's kind of a byproduct that he ends up convening with nature, and the the book has been used for the last 30 or 40 years at least, as a kind of American environmentalism er text. Mm-hmm. Um, I must say I am not a huge fan of Walden. I think it's boring. <laughs> I think it's self-righteous. I think it's dishonest. But it is hugely important for American environmentalism, and it, it, do, it has gotten 
many many people interested in the natural world and um so you know it has it has some very good effects to it um it also has one rather bad effect which i think it has created the problem i was talking about early earlier this blind nature love on the part of urbanites who don't understand nature thoreau was not really that sort of person but he made it look so easy to to live out in the woods alone that i think lots of people think they could do it without really understanding what that would be like but um you know if if you haven't read walden it's it's worth reading it may get your blood going the way it gets mine going um but it's worth it's worth reading anyway, and certainly I think it's difficult to understand the American American environmentalism without without understanding Walden. Mm. What do, what do you have in mind, Nathan? Uh, David, Nathan is not. <laughs> Nathan will not be sharing. Um, I tried to imagine what Nathan might have invoked, but I'm I'm coming up blank on that one. Um, j- just a couple of things. One. Um, is uh, that that little word word Wordsworth sonnet? The world is too much with us. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. What we see in nature that is ours, we've given our hearts away, a sordid boon. Um, and it goes on like that. Um, I, every as time as Wordsworth talk, does tend to go on like that. As as Wordsworth tends to go. Right, fortunately, this is a sonnet, so it's only fourteen lines on it. Uh, um, you know, totally. Uh, but they're they're pretty dense. Um, whenever I've uh, I've taught sonnets, I like to uh, pitch sonnets from different eras at my students, and uh, there's usually about a half a dozen of them in a class of 25 that will cotton on to this particular one, and I get these misanthropic screeds um, all about humans humans destroying the world and their uh, you know, lay, you know, enlarging on Wordsworth's "Little we see in nature that is ours," and getting and spending we lay waste our powers, and all the rest of that. And well, that, that that sonnet is kind of a precursor to the zero population growth movement. Well, that's what it that's what it sounds like, um, and his solution at the end um, is well. That should also sound familiar. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. I mean, his his ultimate solution is to change religions. Um, he he seems to be blaming, as 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 often the case with people who mistake Augustine for a for a material world hater, uh, seems to be blaming Christianity for um, the evils of the Industrial Revolution um, and suggesting that a return to paganism in which uh, the divine is seen as as imminent in nature, as part of nature, you know, old gods like Proteus and Triton playing around in the ocean, that that's, that that's the solution to... Um, the human sense of distance from the natural world, which results in destruction of the natural world, and it, it, just looking at that, I, that just seems. Yeah, there we go. There's the modern environmentalist movement right there. Um, for better now, or for worse. For better or for worse. Um, now I want to push back on that with uh, with Tolkien. I see your words worth, and I raise you. Tolkien. I figured you were going to bring up Tolkien first. I couldn't believe it. Well, see, I I, I have to kind of set up, uh, you know, set set up one side and then set up the other in order to beat up on it. Um, so now I'm going to imagine Tolkien hitting Wordsworth. Um, which uh, Tolkien, if you if you've read Lord of the Rings, um, you know. Tolkien loves the natural world. He loves natural beauty, particularly trees. He's he's all about the trees to the degree where uh, he actually imagines a race of creatures called ints who are animated trees whose mission in the in the world is to uh, prevent the wanton hewing and burning of trees. And so. Uh, in, in the Lord of the Rings, if you watch the movies, you'll see, you know, this giant tree man voiced by John Rhys Davies, um, 
leading all of the animate tree giant men uh, in battle against Saruman, who uh, uh, somewhat in the Lord of the Rings and even more clearly in the movies is this uh, this image of of industrialization without conscience, um, industrialization for its own sake metal gears and wheels and and furnaces that seem to have no object um ex- ex- except their own you know the wheels keeping on turning and and trees being burned up to do so um so yeah tolkien has this has this idea that you know uh, or at least this this wish that trees could avenge themselves um on the other hand uh balance that out with the fact that Middle Earth is not inhabited only by tree giant men at the end of the story. Um, it's still inhabited by humans and elves and dwarves and all sorts of other, um, you know, rational creatures who reflect and to some degree and in some, you know, kinds of balance, you know, the different aspects of humanity. Um, you know, in order to to preserve the natural world, the world does not need to be depopulated of rational beings. Um, the story and, I always think about with Tolkien is that he loved driving his motor car, as they called it, and uh, but he he completely stopped driving it once he heard what cars were doing to the British countryside. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that that's the kind of guy he was. Um, but at the same time, you know, he, he does, you know, he, he wants humans to live with the world. He wants humans to still be there um, because, you know, he was, he was a Christian um, and so saw humans as the image, um, the image bearers of God in the world and therefore uh, a good and beautiful part of creation that also needs to be, um, needs to be preserved but also needs to think harder about its relationship to that natural world. I'll recommend a book, um, and one, uh, first full disclosure, uh, one of the co-authors, Jonathan Evans, is my, uh, Jonathan Evans is my, my advisor in my PhD studies, but he and a gentleman named Matthew Dickerson have written a book entitled Ints, Elves, and Eriador, The Environmental uh, Vision of J.R.R. Tolkien, which you can get I think for about fourteen bucks in the Kindle edition off of Amazon, but uh, basically it's 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 an examination of of middle Tolkien's Middle Earth uh, in terms of ideas like environmental stewardship, uh, agriculture, industry, um, conservation of wildness for its own sake. Think all of these kinds of ideas. Uh, they're they're kind of wading through. And and really, if 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 we want to pursue um, a form of environmentalism, um, that's one I would that's one I would point to as well because it doesn't end up with me being killed killed by a whale watcher or something. So well, we've we've made our uh, our round of all of the bases: biblical, theological, philosophical, scientific, literary, all that stuff. Um, so you know, I guess we should. We should wrap things up now. Um, I, I wish I could remember what what point Nathan wanted to make at the end, but uh, uh, I, I know we'll we'll make our own, Michael. So, uh, uh, what are some? I, I guess we'll we'll leave with more questions than answers, uh, as Nathan wanted us to do. And um, so, what are a couple some good questions that people aren't asking but should be asking to think to think well about this matter? Well, I've got one question for Christians and one question for atheists. Uh, the question for Christians, what can we really know about God from looking at creation? As I, as I mentioned, creation is not all pleasant. It's sometimes violent, sometimes ugly, sometimes cruel. And I, I'm not sure we want to go trumpeting that you can see God in the natural world. Uh because mm-hmm. we do live in a fallen world, and so I think it is he is at the very least obscured, and we need to be careful making that point. And the other thing, the question I wanted to ask atheists, and I, I don't mean this as any kind of apologetic point-grabbing or anything like that, but it's just a question I've always wondered, which is, 
if indeed the, the guiding principle of our universe is natural selection, and certainly that's what someone like Dawkins seems to suggest in a blind watchmaker. If 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 that's the if that's the foundational principle of our universe, why should I care at all if a species goes extinct? Mm. Because under the system of natural selection, that's what species do. So yeah. what's conservation about? Why why do I care about the blue whale or the dodo? Or uh, gosh, the crocodile, or, or other species that are endangered or you know already extinct. Why, why does that matter? They they just weren't strong enough to survive. And yeah. I, 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 I've not, I've not heard an answer to that question. I assume people have it. So, what questions did you come up with, David? Well, my first question, um, again, aiming aiming it at. Uh, at Christians who who tend to be more more skeptical of of environmentalism, uh, right off the bat, is to ask the question, you know, who and what does God love, and then to go through the scriptures and and look for the answer to that question, uh, who and what does God love, because I think very often uh, we we have a a very man centered notion of of God's love and the operations of God's love in the world. Um, and that, and that can result in us not appreciating, uh, the, the love and the care that's also shown towards the other, the other things that God made and, and called good. Um, so yeah, I encourage you, uh, you know, read the story of creation closely and pay attention. What does God call good? Um, Read the last chapters of the book of Job in which God enlarges on his creation, uh, even talking about aspects of it that humans have no access to. Um, you know, read uh, the sayings of Christ about, uh, well, about sparrows falling and, and, you know, things like that. And then, and, ta- and take that to heart. Um, God loves the things he made. Uh, the other question that I would ask, and this is, this is, uh, pushing back at environmentalists, which is, uh, we're, we're told often, you know, what would Jesus do, um, to pay attention to that. But I think another good question that, that Christians should ask in, in this particular setting is what did Jesus do? Um, we've seen, uh, a perfect human life. Uh, we've seen a life lived without sin and what occurred in that life lived without sin. Go back to the gospels and look at the way Jesus interacted with the natural world. And it includes, um, well, it includes a sanction of agriculture. It includes the eating of meat. It includes the killing of animals. Um, well, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's something also that, that, that Christians need to come to terms with uh, to push back at this sort of knee-jerk, we've got to save all of the things um, at the expense of humanity. Uh, you know, to push back on that, what did what did God made flesh do when God made flesh came to the world and interacted with it? Thank you, David. I'm going to close it out since you you have to tell us what we're doing in two weeks. I don't think we're doing a show next week. We uh, right. just tipping our hat. We normally record on Thursdays. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving. I will not be available for recording. You and Nathan can do something if you want, but um, no. <laughs> so what are we talking about in two weeks, David? Um, I was really, really jealous when you guys were talking about conferences and so forth in the point one episode that I could not be involved in. So I am going to force you to return to that conversation. Uh, we're going to have uh, a nice talk about conferences, what they are and uh, what functions they can serve. And then we can uh, do some imagining about what a, a Christian humanist conference might look like. Sounds like a plan. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. For David Grubbs, for the now absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. The lines of my earth So brittle and fertile and ready to die I need a drink but the world is gone i
anymore.